This is the weekly for Friday, October 18th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully from the Hoover Institution on the campus of Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. George Shultz served as the Labor and Treasury Secretary during the Nixon administration and as Secretary of State under President Ronald Reagan. In December, he turns 99 years old. Today, he continues to speak out on climate change, urging Republicans to step up to the plate when it comes to changing our nation's energy habits. He also reflects on his interactions with world leaders and offers advice on some of the trouble spots facing American diplomats today. Our conversation with the senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Secretary Schultz, your new book, Thinking About the Future. I want to frame my opening question in terms of America's future with our allies and the trouble spots that we are facing in the road ahead. Well, there are basic principles involved. I remember when I was in Marine Corps boot camp at the start of World War II, the sergeant hands me my rifle. He says, take good care of this rifle. This is your best friend. And remember one thing. Never point this rifle at anybody unless you're willing to pull the trigger. No empty threats. Marine Corps boot camp wisdom. That's the first principle. You've got to be sure that what you say, you do. You don't say you're going to do something, then in the clutch you don't do it, because people then don't uh, pay any attention. And then there's a corollary to that. You turn it around. If you notice somebody who does what says you're going to do, then I can deal with you. Because if we make a deal and you say, you'll do this if I'll do that, I know you're going to do it. So I trust you. So the second piece of wisdom out of this is trust is the coin of the realm. And you've got to have a person who can be trusted if you're going to get anywhere. So I take those two precepts as basic guides. And Ronald Reagan understood them well. Based on what we're seeing today in Syria and in the Middle East, Do our allies trust America? No. Why should they? We don't do what we say we're going to do. What is your biggest concern with regard to Syria and what is happening there right now? Well, we fought with the Kurds. There have been a group of people in a tough area, and somehow they joined with us in fighting ISIS, and we fought on their side. And then all of a sudden, we just walk away from them and leave them helpless in a very tough battle. And the Turks, obviously, are after them. So it it makes you ashamed. But there are Republicans in Congress, Senator Rand Paul among them, and the president who says, we need to stop fighting endless wars. We need to get out of the Middle East. Your response to that argument is what? Well, how do you get out of the Middle East? You're going to abandon Israel? No, you're not going to abandon Israel. That would be a terrible thing to do. And over the years, we've had great stakes in the Middle East because of our dependence on Middle Eastern oil. We're not so dependent anymore, but still, we have friends and allies there. So I think that one of the great... um, attributes of the people at the end of World War II, Truman, Atchison, Marshall, they looked around the world, they said, what a crummy world. 
But then they said, we're part of it whether we like it or not. That's unlike after World War I when we walked away. They said, we're part of it whether we like it or not. And they set out to make a better world. And there were, this wasn't the U.S. telling other people what to do. This was the U.S. convening people and developing a consensus. There were 44 nations at Bretton Woods that basically set out the ground rules for um, international economic uh, arrangements. Then we had NATO. NATO really worked. It was a very important alliance. And I think by the time the Cold War came to an end, it's fair to say that we had, they had been built a lot of leadership from the United States, a security and economic commons in the world from which everybody benefited. That commons is falling apart, in part because of what we're doing, but it's falling apart for many reasons. And I think we are, we are now on another hinge of history, and we better wake up and then learn how to cope with it. Another hinge in what way? Well, here are the ways. First of all, people don't realize how big the demographic changes are ahead. Every developed country has low fertility and high longevity. Most are losing working age populations, some rather rapidly. Russia, Germany, Japan, China, all are. The U.S., Canada, and Australia are the same fertility, longevity, but they probably won't lose population because we're immigration countries. And the president says we're full. That's nonsense. There are 7.3 million jobs unfilled in the United States. And you go to any agricultural area, and they're starved for people who will pick the strawberries. So we've always had beneficial results from immigration, and we continue to. At any rate, the demographics are changing. The world population will continue to increase because fertility is still relatively high in Africa and a couple of East Asian countries. But these tend to be countries where economic opportunity is not great and where the ravages of climate change in the form of uh, drought uh, and food supplies are hit. So they are places from which they're going to be refugees. So we better think about that. I want to come back to the issue of climate change in just a moment, but point blank, what is your view of this president and his administration? Well, I don't want to get into such character, broad characterizations, but I think his view that the climate change is a hoax is ridiculous, simply ridiculous. Look at, you don't have to look at the science, just look at the facts. There's an ocean being created in the Arctic. How did that happen? The ice mass over Greenland is melting fast. Why? The, the Great Barrier Reef and the other reefs in the Caribbean are all acidifying. Why? The evidence is there. It's right before your eyes. And this goes back to something that you led back in 1987, the Montreal Protocols, which did what? Well, it was an interesting thing. They, it became apparent that the ozone layer was depleting. And I had looked at all the evidence and I became convinced it was so. If that happened, it would be a catastrophe for the world. And I had twice a week private meetings with President Reagan, and we talked about it quite a lot, and he became convinced that it was um, a problem. And then he did something. There were some scientists who doubted it. <clears throat> 
Then he did something that was characteristic of Ronald Reagan, but nobody does today. He went to the people who had a different view, and he put his arm around them and said, you don't agree with us, we respect that. But you do agree that if it happens, it's a catastrophe. So why don't we take out an insurance policy? That didn't get him on our side, but it got him off our back. And we were able to work with other countries and develop what was called the Montreal Protocol. An interesting fact that came along, we had something for people to do, and that was something was derived out of research from the DuPont company. So a private company produced the thing to do. So people went out and did it, and I think the ozone layer has not disappeared. It, it worked. It's a very important environmental treaty that worked, and Ronald Reagan deserves the credit for bringing it about. And you worked with President Reagan probably closer than anyone else alive today. So based on your knowledge and your relationship with him, how do you think he would view American foreign policy today? Well, first of all, he was very reliable. If he said he was going to do something, you better believe he would do it. And he had a clear view and he had a, a profound sense of values. Let me t take you to something outside the foreign policy area and domestic policy. When he came to the office, inflation was in the teens. The economy was going nowhere. The Cold War was as cold as it could get because Jimmy Carter cut off all relations after they invaded Afghanistan. And <clears throat> so Paul Boker was over at the Fed, and he was doing what needed to be done, namely discipline the money supply. And Reagan agreed with him. This, you have to get rid of the inflation if you're going to have a decent economy. And people kept running into the Oval Office saying, Mr. President, Mr. President, you're going to cause a recession. We're going to lose seats in the midterm election. And he patted them on the head and smiled, and he put a political umbrella over Paul Volcker. And we did have a recession, and we did lose seats. But by the time the end of 1982 came along, it was clear inflation was under control. It was going to stay that way. And the economy took off like a bird. So he took a long-term point of view. He took a short-term hit to get a long-term gain for the economy. And critical thing in his way of thinking. Let me remind our listeners, we are on the campus of Stanford University at the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California, our conversation with George Shultz, the former Secretary of State in the Reagan administration. You also worked with President Richard Nixon. So in terms of, again, where we are today, how do you think Richard Nixon would view American foreign policy based on your interactions with him? Well, Nixon was a strategist. He had a flaw, which we all know about. But he was a strategic thinker, and his trip to China is well publicized, but I saw it in other ways, too. For example, when I became Secretary of Labor, I had made speeches as a university professor saying the frequent interventions in big labor disputes by the Kennedy and Johnson administrations were ruining the private bargaining process. Because if you know you're coming to the White House, you don't make your best offer till you get there. So there's no private bargaining. And I thought that the um, estimates of, of what the damage done to the economy were way overstated. So <clears throat> a longshore strike starts on the eastern Gulf Coast, I think around July 1988. And President Johnson enjoined the strike. 
And there's a fast-track appeal to the Supreme Court under Taft-Hartley. The Supreme Court agreed with the president. So the injunction held, and it ran out in the middle of January 1989. I'm sworn as Secretary of Labor on January 21st. And the press said to me, okay, Professor Schultz, now you're Secretary of Labor. What are you going to do? So I went to the president. I said, this strike will cause a lot of kerfuffle in New York City. But that's not a national emergency. That's a New York emergency. And if you will hang tough for four or five weeks and I get us with the heads of the parties that they're not coming to the White House, I can get this settled. <clears throat> and then we'll send a big message to the collective bargaining system that private bargaining is still the way to go. You're not coming to have the government. And he bought it. And he did. He, the governor came. The mayor came. Senator Javits came. And he hung with me, and it turned out just the way I said. Four or five weeks, we got it settled. And we sent a big message. You haven't read about Taft-Hartley recently, have you? It all goes back to that. So he was willing to listen to a strategy and do something. In he, had, there- he had another thing that people uh, don't somehow don't realize, but people talk about desegregation of the southern schools system in terms of the Brown decision. Supreme Court made the Brown decision, and you know what happened? Nothing. The schools remained segregated. And so in 1970, President Nixon decides he will desegregate the schools. And I wind up chairman of the committee trying to implement this decision. Pat Moynihan was in the White House, so he was part of my team. A wonderful lawyer named Len Garment and a former advance man, Morgan, was part of So we had a little team. We went to the president and we said, the way we're going to go about this is we're going to form biracial committees in each state. And we're not going to pay any attention to the political party that people belong to. All we want are strong, respected people. That's our criterion. So we formed these committees. And everybody said the toughest state was going to be Mississippi. So we had them come to the White House, came to the Roosevelt Room, and from my labor relations experience, I know people like to blow off steam. But if they're arguing principle, you never get anywhere. So I let them blow off steam for 15, 20 minutes. And then I had the attorney general come in. And he said, what are you going to do in the school zone, Mr. Attorney General? He said, I'm going to enforce the law. Thank you. Leave. So I said, well, it's been an interesting discussion. But the point is, it's going to happen. And these are your communities. These are your children. So what's going to happen when this happens? What's going to take place? Is there going to be violence? What's going to happen to the quality of the schooling? That's, that's you, your communities. So then you get people talking about solving problems, and Americans are good at problem solving. And they may argue about principle. You give them a problem, and they'll try to work out an answer. So that's the way they got going. And <clears throat> then I took them over to the State Department reception rooms for lunch. And there's a desk over there that Thomas Jefferson built himself. He was a carpenter. And on it, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. The quill is still there. All men are created equal. So we have a nice lunch over there. And I always look for who's going to be the chairman of the committees. And I had two guys I picked out. I'm having lunch with them, and it's going well, so I got up and leave. A young lawyer from the Justice Department got after me. What are you leaving for? You know, I said, you don't get it. If I'm there, it's my agreement. If I'm not there, it's their agreement. And I want this to be their agreement. So they'll 
be wanting to carry it out. You wanted them to have skin in the game. Exactly. And <clears throat> so then we go back to the White House and going pretty good. So we go across the hall into the Oval Office. And President Nixon says, well, here we are in the Oval Office. Think of the decisions that have been made here that affected the welfare and security of our country. Well, here's this big issue we have. I've made my decision. But that's not enough in a country like ours. People in the states and communities have to make their decisions, too. And we're ready to work with you. If you will work with us, we'll work with you. And he was very inspiring. And they left on cloud nine. And they went to work. I had a little nest of money I got from HEW. Not a lot, but enough. And I could say to them, look, if you have some little problem around the schools, you need to have something fixed up, send me a request and I'll turn it around in 24 hours. No big deal. And get a little money. That helped. But at any rate, we got them. We had gone through um, most all but one state, Louisiana, was left. So Pat and I thought, you know, we, we've gone to this thing now. We know how to do it. So why don't we go south? Instead of bringing people to Washington, let's go, <coughs> go to the south. So we go down to New Orleans. The night before, Pat and I we start meeting with the Louisiana crowd. And it's moving, but not as good as usual. And I'm saying to myself, it's one thing to bring people to the White House. It's another thing to meet in a hotel room in their hometown. Not the same. And it comes. But then all of a sudden, the president arrives. So I had to go out and tell him, Mr. President, they're not in the shape they're usually in. When you meet with them, you're going to have to put this over yourself. And he did. He listened. He controlled. And he put it over. Then we had the all the co-chairman of the other states there. And we had a meeting. It was like a revival meeting. Everybody was saying, you've thought of this problem. You've thought of that. What are you doing about this? So and back and forth. It was great. And then the schools opened. And Spiro Agnew had a pose we had a meeting in the Oval Office before the trip, and I made my pitch, and Agno was vice president. He said, Mr. President, don't go. There you're going to be in a room. Half the people are going to be black. Half the people are going to be white. There's going to be blood burning through the streets of the South. The blood will be on your hands. Don't go. So the president looks at me, and I say, well, Mr. President, whatever happens, it's on your watch. But I think the vice president is wrong. We've been working with these people. They haven't been idle. And I think this is a shot that will help us. And we want to bring this off. So he, he decides to go. So we had this wonderful meeting. And the schools opened. There was no violence. It was a miracle. But Nixon brought that off. Had a, he had the view that this is something that he, he hits. This is constitutionally and morally right to do this. So he did it. Mr. Secretary, as you look at the State Department today, there have been a lot of reports about sinking morale, resignations, and career Foreign Service officers who are either frustrated or feel that uh, the department is stagnant. If you could give advice to Secretary Pompeo, what would it be? Because you had a situation where you stood up to State Department employees and even threatened to resign back in 1985. Well... I think the State Department has a very important role to play. We have ambassadors out all over the world keeping track of what's going on, and they're realists and they're talented people. You have 
a foreign service exam. You bring young people in, you give them assignments. Gradually, they learn from experience, and you sort out who's good. And by the time you get through, you get talented people, and <clears throat> they enjoy what they're doing. So it's a good operation, but it's been allowed to atrophy. The budget has been cut, so that means the numbers of people go down. Mexico is our next-door neighbor, very important country for us. We didn't have an ambassador there for two years. Imagine not having an ambassador in Mexico. It's an insult. So we would have a good one there now, as I understand it. But at any rate, it's very important to keep up the numbers and the quality and the fill the posts because then we know what's going on around the world. And so your advice to Secretary of State Pompeo, what would it be? Go to the Congress. First, you have to go through OMB, and they're tough right now with the State Department, I gather. But you've got to go and get more money so you stop having this atrophying and sense. I mean, he, he said, he quote, the State, State Department's going to get its swagger back. Fine. Well, let's get the swagger back with a little money and people. And so I think he's got the right idea, but whether the implementation is coming along, I don't know. And as you look at our closest allies, most notably Japan, in Europe, and in Great Britain, how do they view America today? Well, I don't know. I'm not around, so I can't help it. But I can't help but believe that they wonder whether we have the attitude of the world is out there and we're part of it, whether we like it or not. So we need to engage. Your life has included the Great Depression, service in World War II, obviously living through Vietnam, working with Presidents Nixon and Reagan. You will be 99 years old in December? My first president to work with was President Eisenhower. For you young people, he was a general who became president. He turned out to be a wise person. So how do you look back at your life? What stands out? Well, I think that uh, public service is very important. And it's a high point. I have had other jobs, paid a lot more. But I always thought if I had the opportunity to serve, that's the thing to do. And right now I'm supporting an organization called With Honor. And we have the idea that if we, we support a veteran who wants to run for Congress, no matter what party he or she is from, because we figure a veteran has got it built into that person in DNA a kind of patriotism. They're there to serve the country. That's their object. That's why they're there. So you get people like that in the Congress. They're less saying, I'm here to serve Republicans or I'm here to serve Democrats. But I'm here to serve the USA. And they also know from their experience in the armed forces that they're part of a team. An individual doesn't get anywhere. The team gets somewhere. And you're part of the team. You don't necessarily agree with everything, but you go and you do your part. So they have that kind of spirit. So we have uh, so far taken part in the election of 19 people to Congress. Ten Democrats, nine Republicans, and interestingly, they formed a little caucus already among themselves, and they talk about what's going on and don't necessarily agree, but they work it out. So it's a good example. And you tell those veterans in Congress what? Your advice to them? Well, do what you're doing. Serve the country and judge things according to that standard and be willing to listen to other people including people who start out with a different view than you do, 
hear their views, give them yours, try to work out problems. But Secretary Schultz, that seems to be lost in Washington today, where people are talking at each other, not to each other. We seem far more polarized than ever before. Agree or disagree? Well, that's the way it seems. If you look at it, I'm way out here in California. What goes on, what I read from Washington is nothing like the Washington I knew. And I was there in the Eisenhower administration. I helped Kennedy and Johnson some. I worked in the Nixon administration, in the Reagan administration. And so I've been involved. And those were always constructive times. You could disagree with people, but you argued with them and um, seemed like a different atmosphere than what I read about now. Why do you think we've lost that today? Any I don't thoughts? Know, but here's my idea of what to do about it. <clears throat> Who decides when you get up in the morning? You do. Who decides what you're going to have for breakfast? You do. Who decides who you're going to marry? You do. Who decides where your children are going to go to school? You'd like to have more say. Um, and most of the big decisions in your life, you make. And then when it comes to security in your community, you have your police force. You have your fire department that comes and does the fire, keeps the fire business going, and so on. So I think we ought to decentralize a little bit more than we have and um, bring more stuff out of Washington and more towards states and localities and ourselves. Take responsibility. And that will wake Washington up for one thing. I'll give you an example. It's absolutely clear that as the globe warms, tropical diseases will come north. That's obvious, isn't it? You agree? Agree. Okay. Now, what are we doing about it? Nothing. Because in Washington, they don't think the climate is changing. Out here in California, we know it's changing. So I say, why don't we get, we have terrific health people here in California. Let's get down to our southern border. Let's get up our diagnostic and our treatment capabilities so we're ready. And let's see if we can figure out how to fix these mosquitoes so they do a little less harm. And after we get our ideas in order, let's call a meeting, invite other states to come. Don't invite Washington. And get ourselves ready to meet something inevitable. And call it the new federalism. I have to ask you one personal question before we conclude, because as we mentioned, you will be 99 years old in December. I must say you look great. You sound sharp as ever. What's your secret? I don't pay any attention to it. I just keep doing what I'm doing, and I, I do things that I enjoy. And right here at Hoover, I'm having a big time because I have this project on that I mentioned earlier. We're on the hinge of history, and we're trying to figure out how it's going to affect uh, different countries and regions and how it's impacted different subject matter. And then you have climate change and you have a subject we haven't talked about, namely the proliferation of nuclear weapons. It's a very dangerous time, I think. And <clears throat> just at this moment, you would like to have governance be good. It's not look around the world. Here, look at Britain. You think the British, I mean, they're always steady as you go. They go through, get things done. It's a, a catastrophe, and so on. So I think that we have real problems ahead of us, and we've got to figure it out. And once again, the United States, I think, has to get up and say, it's 
a big looming set of problems. We're part of it, whether we like it or not, and give some leadership. What keeps George Schultz up at night? What worries you the most as you look at the future? Well, I sleep pretty well. I don't worry too much. <laughs> I have five children. I have 11 grandchildren. And I have six and 6.9% great-grandchildren. So I, one of my granddaughters is about to deliver. So these little kids are fantastic. You watch them. They're curious about everything. Every once in a while, one of them learns something. Look at you in the lab and say, look at me, I just learned something. So you realize you're born curious and you're born loving to learn. And you watch these kids and you say to yourself, what kind of a world are they going to inherit? And, and you what, answer that by saying and what? And I say to them, what can I do to make it better? So I work on this hinge of history problem. I work on climate change issues. I worry about nuclear power, <clears throat> other associated things, and write about them. Finally, the cover on the book, Thinking About the Future, a young George Schultz. What does that represent? Well, it's... Um, it was a longer future then than it probably is now, but still, <clears throat> my expression says that I was thinking about the future, and um, this was toward the end of the war. War ended fairly, and before the war, I had World a, War Two. World War Two. I I majored in economics at Princeton, and there was a lively new economics department at MIT being created by Paul Samuelson, and so I applied for their Ph.D. program, and they accepted me. So I came back after the plow, and <clears throat> I was stationed at the Boston Navy Yard, and I said to the commander, <clears throat> nothing for me to do here, so okay if I go over and see if I can get going at MIT. And he said, okay. So I go over there, and I said, You're, you admitted me before the war, and here I am. So I started in studying economics there, and it was very good. George Schultz, former Secretary of Labor, Secretary of State, author, and now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. But don't forget, I was also direct, first director of the Office of Management and Budget. Mel Laird was Secretary of Defense. So I said to him, Mel, you and I probably have a few arguments here and there, but let's get one thing clear. What the Commandant of the Marine Corps wants, he gets. I'm a Marine, first and foremost. Semper Fidelis. Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time.